0: Hello, everybody. It's me, Adam Proctor. It's with tremendous amount of sadness that I announce to many of you something that you will already know. My mentor and friend Leo Panich passed away just a couple of days ago from COVID. He was recently diagnosed with multiple myeloma. He had a pain in his back for which he went to the emergency room about a month ago. They discovered it was multiple myeloma, which is a blood disease Uh, He had gotten some good news. The last time I had talked to him, almost seven days ago now, he had gotten some good news about that particular disease and his life expectancy looked to be maybe an additional eight to 10 years. And for a man who is in his early to mid 70s, uh, you know, that's a full life. And so he was very optimistic the last time we talked. But since then, uh, he contracted COVID at the hospital, like so many other people have, and he succumbed to that on saturday at some time is my understanding at this point COVID is a nasty nasty disease it it has cut down so many people and it will continue to cut down so many people who uh, for whom it is not yet their time it does cut down people you know on the on their deathbed at nursing homes and such people who are at the twilight of their life but others like leo uh, had many many years ahead of them and uh, we all expected Many great things, a lot more mentoring, a lot more inspiration, and a lot more knowledge uh, to be gleaned from this man before he was taken from us. Um, And here we are. I'm back on the mic eulogizing somebody who was very near and dear to me. Uh, Once again, people will know that I uh, gave a similar eulogy to the late Michael Brooks just months ago when he unexpectedly passed away, and uh, we're doing this again. Another giant on the left. This this man, his life, uh, the way he lived it, and uh, the way he touched people, has re- reverberations across the left and across the globe in ways that really cannot be enumerated. And I'm not even going to try to do that today. But I am going to talk about what he meant to me and what he's meant to this program and what he has meant to the politics that you all have come to know and many of you love, I think, uh, from this program. And I want to talk about that to to give a, a sort of a little case study of, of what a, a life well lived on the left looks like. Because if there ever was a model for a public intellectual, for uh, a, a mentor, for even a father figure to so many of us on the left, it would be Leo Panich. He only made it on DPS, I believe, two times. I'm not mistaken. I actually haven't even gone back and look at, looked at the catalog. I'm, I know of two interviews that I did with Leo. And that doesn't seem like much. I've had some people on the show many, many more times than that. But uh, Leo was at the heart of everything that I did on this program. Uh, Perhaps that's the reason why I didn't have him on more than I did, because I feel like almost every word that comes out of my mouth is uh, in in some way, shape or form uh, directly influenced by that man, uh, by his work, by the relationship that we had, by his mentorship while I was at York University and after. And so in a way, even when Leo wasn't on the program, which he rarely was, uh, he was always on the program. He spoke in and through me, through my understanding of politics, the way that I frame uh, questions and problems, my sort of macro strategic thinking, the kind of nuance that I try to bring to the show, the kind of uh, fairness and yet um, rigor that I try to bring to the show. I don't always succeed there, Um, perhaps a little more hot headed, uh, a little more brash than Leo uh, was. He was a gentle giant who could uh, absolutely be imposing and intimidating and come down hard on a particular topic, but yet he never lost that characteristic warmth and humility uh, that so many people knew him for. And so many of you, I understand in the audience, didn't know Leo. Uh, Many of you maybe haven't even heard of him. Later here, after I finish up this brief eulogy, I'm going to be replaying an interview that I did with him that came out as a B side in 2017, and uh, I, I now I, I've always cherished that interview. Um, it's part of the uh, interviews like that is a big reason why I became a podcast host. <laughs> I wanted an excuse to get influential people, perhaps particularly influential people who were close to me, like Leo, who was a who was a mentor and a former academic advisor. I wanted to have an excuse to get them on the phone and to ask them questions that I've always wanted to ask them. And uh, Leo is a coy, he was a coy SOB. He didn't like to talk about himself. And so for this B-side, what I did a few years ago is I, I sort of tricked him. I bamboozled him uh, into talking about himself by asking him questions about the people that were in his life, like Ralph Miliband, like Tony Ben, like, like the other projects that he participated in while at the LSE in his graduate school days, the state theory debates that he was around and in and involved in, and so in a sort of roundabout way, perhaps uh, behind his back and and in some cases against his will, I, I I tricked him into talking about himself for about an hour, and I it's a really fascinating discussion. If you guys haven't heard it at all, I you know continue uh, to press on through my eulogy here, and uh, you're gonna get an hour of Leo talking about his history, his past, and the absolutely fascinating story of his life that narrates the past 50 years of the socialist left, you know, uh, crisscrossing in and through so many different uh, national political contexts, you know, having kitchen chats with the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, with the likes of the Jacobin crew, now the Tribune crew, of course, me, uh, many people who are now basically comprising uh, the core of, of what will be the socialist left for the coming generations and uh leo panich definitely influenced um, all, all of those people but so we'll get to that in just a moment but i just i feel compelled it's been less than 24 hours since i got the news but i feel compelled to say something because i certainly didn't know leo you know better than anyone you know there are people in his life that uh knew him better far better uh you know and uh And I want to give my condolences and my thoughts to those people. I'll name some of them right now. Of course, Sam Gendon was his best friend. They were BFFs going back to their undergraduate days. Uh, They wrote a lot together. Of course, The Making of Global Capitalism is is uh, is their coup de grace. I can now safely say that was Leo's greatest book. I had hoped that he had another one in the tank, and he probably should have had another one in the tank had he had another decade on this planet. But that was not to be. Uh so I can now safely say, as I have said, that uh The Making of Global Capitalism was his best book that was co-authored alongside Sam Ginden, who is no slouch himself. Ginden has been on the program a couple of times himself and uh he he and Leo uh, were were real uh, a real Marx and Engels kind of one two punch in the way that they, you know, worked together. So my condolences and thoughts go out with Sam. My condolences go out to Steve Marr, who was an assistant editor at the Socialist Register. Uh, like uh, Steve, I was kind of uh, plucked out of obscurity by Leo and, and brought to be his graduate assistant. And, and Steve uh, served as his graduate assistant at York as well and continued that relationship very closely. Uh, so my thoughts got with Steve. My thoughts, of course, go out with Melanie, Leo's wife. My thoughts go out to uh, Leo's kids and, of course, his grandkids. Leo retired the year after I came to York, and um, you know he was most excited about being a grandfather. And it's, I'm just gutted that the world and his grandkids and his children were robbed of, of those years that they otherwise would have had. So uh thoughts go out to everybody who was extraordinarily close to Leo, because there are so many of us like like me who feel very close to him and, and in reality there are others who who were much closer. But I want to talk about my story. I want to tell my story just by way of of narrativizing a life well lived on the left. Uh, some lessons about what we ought to be aspiring to do <laughs> when we do politics. And I know that's that's something that's become a that's an idea, just even something to aspire to that has become a, a little bit, you know, kind of convoluted and, and opaque these days and in these days of political confusion and, and defeat and demoralization. And so it's I think it's heartening to go back to Leo's 50 plus years on the left to, to think through this stuff. I myself, as many of you will know, was uh, a trot, you know, a <laughs> revolutionary socialist kind of in the ISO tradition. Uh, in my early twenties. And I really credit discovering Leo's work as, as being kind of my wake up call, something that ushered me from a kind of uh, childish uh, ultra leftism. And it really turned me into what I call like a serious grounded socialist, a socialist who is, is certainly doesn't give up on the traditions of like Marx and Marxism and the, in the workers movement and more kind of revolutionary moments throughout history, but at the same time is seriously embedded to be able to respond and think seriously and practically about the kind of political challenges and about the real life of politics. Um, and, um, you know, I I credit that to discovering an interview that Doug Henwood of Behind the News did with Sam Gendin and Leo Panitch back in 2011 or 2012. I can't remember and they were talking about their forthcoming book, The Making of Global Capitalism. And, and, and like so many other people, I've seen uh, Ronan Bertenshaw, lead editor at uh, Tribune Magazine, say something very similar about this book, The Making of Global Capitalism. I'm sure many others, Bhaskar Sankara of Jacobin, has said the same thing about this book. But people like us, we encountered this book and it just was an absolute epiphany. The way that they weaved, they were able to masterfully weave uh, history, with politics, with theory, with strategic, with a constant strategic awareness of the terrain, of the capacities, the lack of capacities, the institutional demands placed on the left due to the kind of historical contradictions in the development of global capitalism. I mean, this stuff is just something that uh, I'll study it for the rest of my life and still never quite get a grasp on it, but it, it absolutely uh, sparked an interest in in the kind of thing that I do on DPS every day now, you know, so if what I just spat out was a bunch of jargon and you're like, Adam, what the fuck are you talking about? What do you mean? I I don't understand. I'm sure it's a great book, but I haven't read it and you didn't do a very good job of explaining what it means to you. But but what it means to me is everything that you've heard on this program week after week after week of trying to untangle some of the the more nuanced, historical, theoretical, practical questions that deal with left politics. Out there. That's what this book tried to do. Over a approximately 100 to 20, 120, 150 year span, um, it brilliantly narrativized the making of global capitalism in such a way to spell out the terrain uh, so that activists today can can do the same with our current moment. And I talk a lot about state theory on this podcast. Another kind of jargon-filled, you know, hyper academic discussion. And we could talk about the miliband pulansis debate. We could talk about how do you define the state? How do actors, uh, p- workers, cl- classes, uh, you know, interact with the economic dimension of the state, the political dimension of the state? Yada yada yada. We can talk about this in kind of big seated, or kind of big big picture, abstract terms. Even more than Ralph Miliband's contributions to state theory, even more than Nikos Palancis' contributions to state theory, The Making of Global Capitalism is the greatest book on state theory ever written. And you know, and that's high praise because uh, you guys know how much state theory means to me. But The Making of Global Capitalism is such an important book, and it's the best book that's ever been written on state theory without even being about state theory <laughs> because it does exactly what I've said so many times in this program state theory must do and does do. Is that it produces an accurate and nuanced roadmap of the terrain on which we are to operate as political actors, with all of the pitfalls, the traps, the contradictions. You know, this is what a good topographical top, topographical map ought to do, right? Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a wilderness guy. I'm not an adventurer. I, I suck at reading maps, and I certainly wouldn't know how to read a topographical map if I had to. If I was out in the wilderness somewhere, but but hypothetically, what a map like that ought to do is tell you kind of where the pitfalls are, where the traps are. Uh, don't go over there because you know that there's a there's a giant crevasse that you'll get lost in, and 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 that's what a state theory ought to do to tell you where the traps are, the pitfalls, not so that you can necessarily avoid them, because because sometimes you can't avoid them. But so that you can try to develop the capacities and the strength and the stick-to-itiveness, right? The longevity, the wherewithal to to, uh, ride out those waves without throwing up your hands and screaming capitulation at every moment of defeat. Because there's going to be a lot of moments of defeat. Um, So moving along, I discovered the book, The Making of Global Capitalism. I... uh, (laughs) Immediately and impulsively uh, emailed Leo. And I said, I think I want to study this stuff with you. And he said, Great, so you should apply to York University. So I did. And I wasn't a very good student because I'm horrifically ADHD. Uh, I can't pay attention to one thing for very long. And it makes me a terrible uh, book student. Uh, I think I'm a pretty smart guy, pretty intellectually curious, but it makes me a terrible book learner. And uh, so I didn't get in. They actually had one slot for international students at York University. And so I was competing for one slot as an American at a Canadian university. and I didn't get in. Despite all that, Leo uh, persevered and he pulled some strings. uh, Some strings that he had, uh, pretty powerful strings, being the former chair of that department for many years. And he was able to get me to York, although not on a full ride. Uh, He was also uh, kind enough to use some of his own grant money that he had been awarded by the Canadian government to offset my international tuition. And so, uh, you know, to say that Leo Panich is single handedly responsible for putting me, for making me who I am today um, is, is absolutely not an understatement. It's just a statement of fact. I would not have ever gone to York. I would not have ever been exposed to the kind of politics and the kinds of uh, thinking and the kinds of uh, practical worker, you know, worker led action and strikes and so on and so forth. And, I, and it's almost undoubted that I would have developed a temperament and the desire to do something like DPS without his careful mentorship and you know i i first encountered leo at a bar when i first moved to toronto i'm this american in toronto i'm freezing my ass off i'm like you guys why is it so cold in august what's happening and i was hanging out with some other of, of leo's uh, advisees leo had a, a crew at york and if you were one of leo's kids you know i i I hope it's not just me who felt this way because it would make me seem like a jerk, but I, I really do think there was a sense that if you were one of Leo's kids, that you were kind of a cut above, you were special, right? Because Leo didn't pick just anybody. And this was the kind of power that Leo gave to people that he mentored. He gave them the sense, the belief that they were capable and, and, and there's going to be, there, you know, hundreds of people are going to be telling their stories in similar ways in which that Leo had a way of mentoring you to make you believe, right, against perhaps even like reason or odds or all odds, right, to make you believe that you were capable and that you had something unique and important to offer. And, um, you know, coming from a guy as accomplished as he was, he could have easily made a personality cult around himself. But that's not at all what he did. He produced a community of very, very serious, <laughs> like up-and-coming types, you know, plucky types of guys who probably didn't deserve to be as, as boisterous or as certain of their ideas as we were. But he took them seriously. And he would sit there, he would sit there the rock star that he was, you know, uh, would, would ask you, uh, do you think that I'm right about this? Perhaps I'm wrong. What do you think, Adam? And I'm like, for God's what am I gonna tell you, Leo? That you're wrong? And eventually, I got the courage to tell him what I actually really did think, and he took it seriously. So let me backtrack. So I met him at a bar. Um, I was hanging out with Adam Hilton, who's been on this program. I was hanging out with Paul Gray, who has been on this program, and Steve Marr. All three have been on this program. They are all Leo's kids. And uh, Leo walks in the bar. He had been traveling, and they said, "There's Leo, your advisor. You you, you should go talk to him." And and he he was a towering man. He was, he went about six, three, maybe tall, six, four, even. I don't know. He felt, he felt like it was, he he carried himself like he was six, nine. But, you know, he was a big guy, towering, booming voice, very, you know, (laughs) very boisterous laugh about him. It would just like fill up the room. And I heard his laugh before I heard his voice. And I made my way through the crowded bar of York students and faculty. And, and I introduced myself, and uh, he kind of grabbed my hand in his big paw and just looked at me, and I immediately felt like I was one of, of his. You know, he, I was one of his kids, and he uh, would, would take me in from that moment on. And um, he's, he's the kind of guy who was just as likely to talk to you about baseball or sports or, you know, uh, whichever girl you were seeing at the time uh, as he was to, to dive into some, you know, serious political conversation. He was a real human. In a way that is sorely lacking. I think on a lot of parts of the left right now. When I talk about socialism for regular ass people. When I talk about you know normies. Um, you know I'm, I'm trying to model my approach. After the way that uh, the kind of uh, hum- hu- humanity. The humaneness with which Leo dealt with people. And so moving along you know I worked very closely with Leo during a time. Unfortunately for a, a sh- too short of a time. Uh, I had to leave York for similar reasons as as to what limited me in getting in. And in the first place, there aren't a lot of positions and slots for funding and so on and so on for international students. And I eventually threw up my hands and left when the tuition was hiked and yada, yada, yada. And so Leo Leo and I parted ways physically, but we did not part ways uh, in terms of him being a a mentor and a continued presence in my life. And I don't know, I I feel like this is going on too long. I I don't want to make this about me, but I do want to kind of narrativize the relationship that. Leo and I had because there are hundreds of people across the world right now who are feeling the same as I'm feeling because they knew the warmth and the generosity and the seriousness of this man and the kind of relationship that you would have with him and uh, and it's in, and they're reflecting now today and in the coming days and weeks and months on the uh, the implications, the ramifications, the consequences of that influence in their lives. And they're seeing how profound it has been. And so um, there's a lot more to say about this man um, and his influence in my life. Uh, you know, at the end of the interview that I'm about to play here, I promise I will uh, stop yapping and get to this interview very soon. But at the interview, at the end of this interview, Leo says that, you know, we shouldn't deify, we shouldn't deify any of the people that I was asking him about. Be, be they, you know, Tony Ben, be they Ralph Miliband, you know, they were just people. They were just people, you know, not gods, right? Uh, so I certainly don't want to go against his own invocation there and and, and deify him. Uh, but there's no doubt that he was a giant uh, in, in every sense of the word. He was a mensch and uh, he was taken from us too soon. And there's going to be a lot more to say and a lot more eulogizing uh, uh you know perhaps I, I could have talked more about his work going back to say 93 globalization in the state a really seminal article that really completely changed the framework of globalization studies and which which started it really initiated this long journey to to the making of global capitalism book that i talked about at the beginning of this eulogy here um and you know his works are are nuanced and different and idiosyncratic and I encourage you to do what I did when I first discovered Leo and Sam in 2010 2011 which is to just devour everything you see by them you know all of the podcast interviews all of the YouTube content all of the articles all of the books just devour it because Leo and and Sam you know give give Sam some credit for this as well of course Sam Ginden, his co-writer co-author co-thinker best friend they have such a unique and nuanced and idiosyncratic approach to politics. And I think it's absolutely sorely needed. If there's anything good that could come out of a man, uh, going far before his time, it's, it's that, uh, I hope this brings cause to, uh, the international left sort of revisiting his, his work, right? I hope that we revisit his work and his way of doing politics and, That we learn from the warmth and the generosity of his mentorship and we bring that to our own lives and, uh, you know, in in the kind of challenges and days and years and decades to come. While it is true that we don't have forever to turn this thing around, of course, catastrophic climate change is right on the horizon. uh, It's also true that we need to be very careful and thoughtful about having um, about setting too high of a bar. For What is success or defeat? We cannot hang our head in defeat and just throw our hands up and walk away. Leo was a committed socialist his entire life and he would have coached us as he often did to look towards the long haul. We can't think about whether we lost or won today, last year, or next year. We have to think about this in terms of a decades-long project of educating socialists and building socialist institutions in order to lay down the groundwork and the capacities that will be required to overturn this monstrous system. Capacities is the word of the day, kids, if this was an episode of Sesame Street capacities. We have to think relentlessly about building the capacities required to overcoming the contradictions of the kind of political fights that are ahead. And that sentence right there encapsulates the uh, the ethos, the governing uh, ideology, the governing uh, rationale of this program, DPS. Uh, with no Leo, uh, no DPS. Uh, you know, I could say that about a lot of I could, I could, I could suggest that a lot of thinkers have influenced me a lot. I think you guys know who they are, you know, from Adolf Reed is prime among them, of course, but I think there could be a DPS without Adolf Reed and not, that's not to knock the man. He's, he's a giant in his own right. And, uh, he means an immense amount uh, to me and to others, but, but there, but there could not be a, a, a DPS without Leo. So, um. Thank you for abiding this eulogy, which went a lot longer than I thought it would. And and yet, I feel like I haven't said even 10% of what I set out to say when I finally got the courage to press record today. So yeah, thank you for abiding this. And um, I hope that you know the the worst thing you can do when you're eulogizing someone is to make it all about you. <laughs> I hope I haven't done that. I hope that I've been very explicit about uh, my aim and talking about my encounter in my life with Leo and what he's meant to me as a way of modeling what a socialist intellectual ought to be as a way of modeling what uh, uh, mentorship on the left ought to be and a way as a way of illuminating what uh, kind of projects we have before us and what Leo has uh, presented uh, in, in, on those terms. So. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll shut up now and, uh, we'll get to the interview. Um, this was from 2017. I, <laughs> I tricked, I bamboozled Leo into talking about himself by, by asking him questions about other people with whom he had uh, very close relationships. I want to say one more thing, and I'm sorry, apologies. I want to say one more thing and I'd be remiss if not doing this. This is just kind of a, I don't know, I'm saying it out loud and I'm putting on the air because it's, if nothing else, I'm, I'm an atheist, I'm agnostic on the question of religion and religiosity, but I don't know, I just feel better maybe if I can say this out loud, which is that, uh, you know, I talked to Leo a week ago and he was battling this multiple myeloma, and, but he felt very optimistic that the treatments were working. And I was obviously devastated to hear that his condition had deteriorated, that he had had a formal diagnosis with multiple myeloma, um, and uh, it was hard to handle. Uh, but I, So I, I emailed him back on one of the times that we had going back and forth, and I emailed him back, and I typed out this paragraph because I would lost Michael Brooks only months before. I've lost uh, someone who was close to me and people who were close to me due to suicide over the past couple of uh, months since the shutdown. And so, uh, having learned lessons from those instances, I I tapped out a paragraph telling Leo how much he meant to me. Um, And I just kind of said, hey, you know, I I want you to know that uh, I know that you have many productive years ahead of you. I want you to know, though, um, how much you've meant to me and, and your mentorship has meant to so many other people. And I consider knowing you to be one of the highlights of my life. And I deleted the paragraph from the email because it felt awkward to eulogize someone while they were still alive (laughs) to their face. And it felt inappropriate because he had conveyed to me that he felt very optimistic about the treatment that he was receiving and that he had many, many more productive years ahead. And so I deleted the paragraph. I didn't tell him, Uh, but I already know what you're thinking, Adam. He knew, I think that he did. I know that he did. And uh, But I just wanted to say that on the air. Don't ever pass up an opportunity to tell somebody to their face what they mean to you. No matter how awkward it makes you feel in the moment, no matter how inappropriate your brain tells you it is, uh, never pass up that opportunity because you don't know if uh, whether or not that might be the last time you get to tell them. So, uh, yeah, please enjoy this interview with Leo. Um, I'm going to be re-airing a number of our podcast chats over the coming week. And uh, everybody, have a happy holidays. Please stay home. Please wear a mask. Please do not put yourself or loved ones in jeopardy. Uh, The end is near. The vaccine is going to be available, and we will get through this. But please, uh, the most important thing is to make it out on the other side alive. I cannot uh, tell you enough how much. Uh, I echo the, the sentiments of so many of you who are listening to this right now and thinking I cannot bear to lose another one of you. So uh, please, everybody, be safe and enjoy. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this is crazy mother.
1: Yeah. Baby, baby. <laughs>
0: Welcome patrons to the B-side of this week's episode. Joining me once again is Leo Panitch. All of you by now will have listened to the free episode that's been out for the last couple of days. I've gotten a lot of really great feedback. Leo is just a luminary. He's an incredible mind. I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, history, some biographical information, just to kind of just give you a feel for what informs the spirit of the show. I actually came across Leo Panitch... Really for the first time officially, you know, face-to-face. I'd sort of seen his work, I've heard of it, but I didn't really pay much attention. But back in 2012, five or six years ago now, I was listening to Behind the News with Doug Henwood. I'm a podcast head, as most of you know. I listen to tons of podcasts, even to this day. They've been instrumental to my political and intellectual development. And Leo and Sam Ginden were on Doug Henwood's show. Big ups to Doug Henwood. And they were talking about their new book, The Making of Global Capitalism. And as many of you were floored by the episode with Leo, I was floored back then. So much so that I dropped everything. I emailed him when he was a professor at York and I left the graduate program that I was currently in and I went up to to Toronto to study with him and the rest is history. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes a little stupidity and impulsivity can pay off, folks. It's needless nothing. You know, it's no stretch to say that this this show would not exist if it weren't for the you know me me hearing Leo and Sam on Doug Henwood's Behind the News radio show podcast. So you know, this is really me trying to get. I'm not going to get too sentimental here, but I really I do I really do mean this uh, from the bottom of my heart. I think that this kind of thing is really important, and this this show, if nothing else, is my attempt to pay it forward and hopefully to open up other people's minds and eyes and opportunities and and, and whatnot open up people's horizons to new thinkers and so i hope that i was able to do that in this episode and other episodes and in in future episodes to come so in any case i'll I'll get off the sentimental train Uh, this is a really fantastic chat we talk about leo's time on the left and what it means to be a socialist intellectual, I think you all are really going to enjoy this. Thanks again, all of you. My patrons mean the world to me. I wouldn't be able to do any of this without you. So thanks again, and enjoy this B-Side with Leo Panic. All right, everybody, joining me uh, for the B-Side this week is Leo Panic. How are you, Leo? Hi, Adam. I'm fine. Welcome back. So I wanted to take this opportunity to pick your brain about some of the experiences you've had on the socialist left. Uh, we were just talking off air, and I was I was sort of mentioning to you that I wanted to sort of pick your brain about the art form of being a socialist intellectual. And uh, you 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 rightly responded that well, Adam, it's an art. Uh, how, how does one uh, articulate an art? It's more of an intuition. Uh, but we're going to try to do just that. I'm going to ask Picasso how to paint, and uh, hopefully. I can get something of an answer uh, from you. So going back, let's go back to your story. You started with Ralph Miliband at the LSE in uh, nineteen late 1960s, correct?
1: Yeah, I uh, was a graduate student uh, doing an MA at the London School of Economics in 1967, having come there from Winnipeg in Canada, very uh, wet behind the ears. Although I had already... Uh, mumbled to uh, Sam Ginden, who is my co-author on The Making of Global Capitalism, but then, you know, my closest mate in first-year university, I mumbled to him on reading Marx's preface to the critique of political economy. I think think I'm a Marxist. Oh, scandalous. Uh, uh, (laughs) At the same time, you know, I, I couldn't distinguish that very much from you know, uh, perhaps being a social Democrat at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, so very wet behind the ears. Definitely. Yeah.
0: What was the, what was the climate like at the LSE in the late sixties? Uh, Ralph Miliband being the luminary that he was there had surely had gathered around him a fairly good cadre of students. It was uh, sort of one of the centers of what would become the new or what was already at that point, the new left in, uh, Parts of Britain. Uh, what was it like going into that environment? And because uh, I want to, I want to paint a picture and, and sort of set the stage. A lot of folks, including myself, look at that moment as kind of like the glory days, the heyday of the Marxist left. And I don't know how you feel about it, but but uh, just kind of like a paint a picture for my listeners.
1: Leonard Cohen uh, once said that the sixties lasted fifteen minutes. Uh, <laughs> Maybe for uh, him, uh, what he can uh,
0: remember of it anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it, 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 one shouldn't overblow it. That said, okay, okay. Uh, that said, uh, well, first of all, you know, what you need to know is, is that in the 1960s, and this was especially true of, of uh, the LSE, the universities themselves were not populated by radical professors for the most part. Hmm. Miliband was very much an exception, even at the LSE. Uh, the dominant professoriate at the LSE uh, were uh, on the right. Uh, Popper was there, uh, yes, right? right. right? Uh, right. And, and in economics, uh, you know, a lot of them, uh, like Robbins, were, uh, you know, anti-Keynesians and closer to Hayek. Hmm. Um and Hayek had been there for a while. Uh, the LSE didn't hire Marxist historians like E.H. Carr, who wanted to live in London. Uh, so, you know, although the LSE had a, a certain tradition, going back to, especially in the politics department, Lasky, who was Miliband's, Harold Lasky was Miliband's mentor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for the most part, the, the, the student body by the 1960s especially was very radical it was radical right across the United Kingdom and increasingly in North America as well uh, obviously as well as in, in France and Germany and Italy but uh, the professori for the most part wasn't there were some junior professors like Robin Blackburn uh, who went on to, who was one of the founders of New Left Review uh, right. very close to Perry Anderson um who was a junior lecturer there, and uh, for supporting the student revolt at the LSE yeah, yeah. around the uh, not only the Vietnam War but the uh, school's investments in South Africa. Um, the There were massive protests, and the school was closed. The second year I was there, when I started my PhD, it was closed for four months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, Blackburn was fired, um, as was another Maoist professor, I think a mathematician. Um, so you know there were the, the the smatterings of you know some professors there, Lawrence Harris at the time, Meghnad Desai, but for the most part, the professoriate was, if anything, right wing. And uh, the student body was, yes, was very, very left-wing.
0: Yeah. This is all covered for folks. If you're interested in this history, it's fantastic. This is covered in Michael Newman's book, uh, Ralph Miliband and the Politics of the New Left. Yeah. It's a really fantastic book. I'm sure he, he, he leaned on you quite heavily for, for a lot of content in that book.
1: Well, you know, and just to show you uh, how things were at that time and, you know, how one stumbled around, even amidst all this radicalism, Um, I had said when I uh, won a Commonwealth scholarship to study in the United Kingdom that I wanted to study economic planning. Hmm. Uh, You know, I thought that was the most radical thing one could do. And uh, they put me in a public administration MA. And it was the most deadly, boring thing (laughs) I had ever encountered. And I thought I couldn't be able to stand it uh, until I came across a fellow Canadian who had come at the same time and was complaining to him, and he said, well, why don't you come up and hear these lectures by this guy Miliband, Hmm. who I'd never heard of. Hmm. Uh, And I went up to uh, Miliband's lecture, and yes, it was like a light went on. He was doing the lectures that became his famous book published in 1969, The State and Capitalist Society. The light went on, and I said, oh, this is what it is. This is what it's called. And this was part of a MA in political sociology, and I convinced uh, the powers that be to let me switch from an MA in public administration to an MA in political sociology, and my fate was probably cast uh, then and there. You know, I had thought that I would probably go back and become a, a radical lawyer. What does a working class kid know about going to university? You know, you become a lawyer or a doctor at that time, um, but but having discovered this, I got I got bitten, and I think that happened to a lot of people who came across the exciting new Marxist writings, uh, not only Miliband's but others. You know, uh, stuff that was appearing in New Left Review. Uh, uh, in the Socialist Register, which Miliband and uh, his co-editor, John Savo, founded it in 1964, uh, reading things, especially if you're an historian, like E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, uh, which was the foundation of the, a new social history, history from below. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of stuff, yes, it was like opening a door against the conventional... Economics, political science, history that we, you know, were initially taught as undergraduates. Now,
0: that's part of a generation. You mentioned Thompson and others. Those are the, 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 the folks who were uh, broke away from the Communist Party after uh, the Soviets rolled tanks in 1956 um, and to, to squash a, a popular revolt. Um, folks like Thompson and others had had enough of communism, but, but they retained their socialist and Marxist principles. So it was an, it's an interesting cadre to find yourself, uh, you know, en- enmeshed in at that moment.
1: Yes. Uh, they uh, – uh, it was also, of course, the Khrushchev revelations uh, about Stalin hmm. uh, but it, the, and the invasion of Hungary. You're absolutely right. Uh, and they tried to found a dissenting journal inside the Communist Party hmm. for which they were expelled. And, and uh, that was the new reasoner. Um, Miliband, who was never in a communist party, uh, joined that project with them. Um, And it was the New Reeser that then came together with a radical journal that had been started by a bunch of very young uh, Oxford uh, and Cambridge students, primarily Oxford, one of whom was Perry Anderson. Charles Taylor was involved. Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a a, a combination uh, of those two journals,
0: kind of like Jacobin. So that was Universities and New Left Review. Review. Uh, that's right. Ja- Jacobin has a similar kind of niche. They had little coffee shops established throughout London. Yes, that's right. Reading what groups. and That's and that right. Type of that's thing. right. Yeah.
1: And and they formed uh, the New Left Review. But hmm. there was a very two very different traditions there. The The young intellectuals were interested in continental Marxist theory, Hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, had rediscovered Gramsci, uh, they were hot to trot about Althusser, etc. And uh, the Marxists who left the Communist Party uh, were much more oriented to being linked to working class traditions Hmm. and to working class activists. Uh, that's not to say that the New Left Review people wouldn't have wanted that, but they weren't as linked. And, and this produced uh, quite a division, uh, which led to a split, uh, whereby Thompson uh, left the board of New Left Review. And, and it was out of that split uh, that the Socialist Register was founded uh, in 1964.
0: So a lot of or a lot of lineages that that are still somewhat active today, and divisions even uh, sort of started in that particular moment uh, between, say, maybe the cultural studies kind of collective with you know Stuart Hall, Raymond Williams on the one hand, and then maybe sort of like the Marxist historians and sociologists, perhaps and, and EP Thompson and Ralph Miliband and others uh, yeah. Saville uh, and others in, in that moment. So so what was your particular relationship uh with 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 ralph and uh in, in, in what was the kind of political project that he instilled in you do you think that was sort of operative from day one or are you sort of in did you spend the rest of your career sort of outlining that agenda mm-hmm. or was there a, a tremendous amount of 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 you know creativity and, and transformation there
1: Well, you know, it was very exciting being involved uh, and very fortuitous to be involved on the ground floor of this attempt to fill an enormous lacuna in Marxist thought, which Mm -hmm. was an adequate theory of the state. To break away from the economic reductionism of Marxism, uh, its its, uh, preoccupation with theories of economic crisis and breakdown, uh, its uh, economistic interpretation of inter-imperial rivalry. Uh, you know, it was all ex- very exciting being on the ground floor of the development of a Marxist theory of the state. And others with me, you know, we immediately started trying to read Poulansas in French. Which was no easy task, let me tell you, <laughs> and, and I'm not sure we got nearly as far as we should have until it was um, public, until it was published in English some four or five years later. This would have Pro- been his political power and social classes. Social that- classes, which was published social class and in- political power in in 1968. Okay, uh, just months before Miliband, State and Capitalist Society. And there's a footnote mm-hmm. in Miliband that says this important book came out just as this one was going to press. Um, so, yeah, I was very excited being involved in that and and uh, the subsequent debates between Miliband and Poulent. And, you know, what was going on intellectually uh, in that sense was something very positive. Students of my era and the elite theorists like C. Wright Mills in the United States really represented this, uh, had done a profound rejection of the kind of mainstream pluralist theory that was the foundation of sociology and political science, and, and generally the intellectual consensus about, you know, these societies were democratic, not in the sense that there was equal power, but that, you know, there was, everybody had enough power through the panoply of interest groups they were involved in to countervail anybody having too much power. Mm -hmm. You know, with with no examination of the capitalist nature of the society hardly at all. And what, you know, we were engaged in uh, was the development, not just a rejection, a critique of that, uh, which elite theory had already provided, but was a positive alternate theory of how politics worked, how democracy worked in a capitalist society society. in the advanced capitalist world, uh, and that was really you know very exciting because the sense was we were developing something new. So you know intellectually, uh, in many respects, I think a lot of people have often thought, and I maybe rightly thought, uh, that I'm not much of a Marxist because I you know I never put much stress on uh, those aspects of Marxist economic theory uh, that define uh, value narrowly. Mm -hmm. in terms of the labor theory of value, Mm -hmm. um, and that are preoccupied with the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, etc. You know, I I think I embraced the notion of Marxism in the sense that I felt that we were developing something better, that we were developing something new, that we were, sure, building on on, on, uh, Marx and even Marxism, uh, but in order to get past what seemed to me its limitations, and seemed, I think, to many of us its limitations. Uh, so that was a very exciting intellectual project. But the, the other side of what was going on, um, I, I think there was a connection between uh, my own past and Miliband's past that was, you know, not quite as intellectual and more oriented to uh, socialist class formation. Um, That is that uh, he, uh, like Thompson and Saville, uh, was already very engaged in trying to create socialist education societies uh, amongst working class people uh, where they would, you know, try to develop their capacities to think about how the society worked, what its contradictions were uh, in the 1960s, etc. And that he had been doing that uh, in the 1960s, you know, before I get to the LSC. and myself coming out of a strong working class community, uh, one where, you know, communists and social Democrats were elected through the post-war period, uh, with parents who were active, uh, both my mother and father. Uh, in uh, working class union uh, and and fraternal societies, uh, support societies of various kinds in the community, I was also very oriented uh, not just to, you know, doing the intellectual work, uh, but to engaging in a continuous process of working class formation and development. Mm -hmm. And I felt very strongly, of course, when I got to Britain, Although I had known some of this in Winnipeg, uh, uh, which was a rather unique working class community, um, you know, that the British working class was closer to socialism than the Canadian in this respect, uh, because of all of the industrial militancy that was going on at that time. Uh, There were a tremendous number of strikes uh, in the old industrial sector, in the new public sector, etc. That was very exciting. It's what I ended up doing my PhD thesis on. Um, But I was under the impression, because of that militancy, uh, that there was a deeper commitment to socialist ideas, to socialist development. And there really wasn't. I think that was naive. (laughs) This militancy was primarily economistic militancy. And uh, the union leadership wasn't doing a hell of a lot to turn that into a socialist militancy. Even the communist shop stewards uh, weren't doing nearly enough in that respect. Um, And, you know, to some extent, the origins of Corbynism. Uh, which go back to Tony Benn uh, in in the 1970s, mm-hmm. the early 1970s and late 1960s in Britain, was precisely about trying to get the Labour Party and the unions to play that kind of role. But this goes back to our earlier conversation. So, So you think, I mean, in that particular moment, I'm trying to draw
0: comparisons, and sometimes comparisons come too cheap. Too cheaply, far too cheaply, you know. In, in terms of drawing, you know, lines of demarcation between now and then, but but certainly there, there's a there's a there's a big difference here. Well, I mean, one of the things is that rather than I think you and I have talked about this, you know, in other contexts, the the labor and socialist militants used to go into you know working class occupations. Um and at some point around the time that your generation was was getting into school, uh, they started going into the universities instead, yeah. perhaps. And so a lot of the organic intellectuals of the working class uh sort of were 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 I don't know, they disappeared or they ended up in the universities in some in some stretch. What what role do you think that plays in the transformation?
1: You know, that's a you know, that's a that's a very important point, Adam. You're right to raise it yeah, a lot of working class kids like myself, born uh, in 1945, let's say, or just before, uh, were born in in uh, a capital class divided capitalist society, but nevertheless, with a golden spoon in our mouths because of the booming era of capitalism uh, in the decades after 1945 and the opportunities it created. For uh, people like us to get into university uh, and, and uh, those of us that didn't I was the first person in my family to go to university my older brother didn't um, uh, there was a you know a certain sense that we had a responsibility as intellectuals mm-hmm. not to abandon our class I'm not saying that the majority of people did that. I think the majority, of course, uh, you know, looked to the ladder of success uh, and, you know, uh, as likely ended up being, uh, you know, working on Wall Street uh, or working as corporate lawyers or what have you. But enough of us, I, I think, had that sense that. You know, as we left our working class mates behind, we had a responsibility to try to study the working class, to try to understand the politics that it was contained in, etc. Now, that might have created a bit of a guilt complex and even a certain extremism uh, on the part and, and, and maybe a romanticization on the part of us, certain of us of what this militant working-class in the 1960s really amounted to. Uh, we We may have overblown its revolutionary potential. Certainly those, I didn't, who went into new revolutionary Leninist parties, you know, searching for a better Leninism in the Trotskyist or Maoist parties than was already present in the Communist parties. Uh, and certainly in the social democratic parties, uh, they probably had, many of them, a, uh, uh, I think, a, a overly uh, optimistic and even romanticized sense of the militancy of the working classes, mm-hmm. um, of, of the possibilities of revolution. Uh, and indeed, they, they may have felt that as well about... Uh, you know, the revolutionary potential of the student movement. Uh, Those who went into Leninist parties wanted to connect it, of course, uh, to the working class. There were plenty of others who probably didn't have that link to a working class past who treated that student rebellion as an alternative to uh, a a working class politics, you know, who picked up the Marcuse kind of uh, idea Uh, That the working class was integrated and the new revolutionary elements, uh, if not revolutionary students themselves, were at least the black power movement, if you like, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if that helps, but I think that was the context that we were operating in.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So. So it was an exciting time, but at the same, on the same, on the other hand, you know it, it, that that self-assessment of that, that being the '60s generation being the radical generation might have been a, a, a sort of uh, <laughs> historical revisionist project that, that results from your self-assessment at the time, which may have been incorrect in hindsight.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was one of those people uh, for whatever reason, it, partly the association with Miliband, but not only. I think, uh, that, you know, never thought that we were on the cusp of revolution. Um, uh, I may have thought that the working classes were, you know, more closer to socialism than they actually were, but I never thought we were on the cusp of revolution in the 60s. Certainly, it was very energizing and exciting, you know, to show up in France in 1968 uh, uh, in the wake of May sixty eight. Uh, it was extremely, you know, uh, energizing and exciting to be part of of the great anti Vietnam demonstrations, or of the occupation of of uh, the London School of Economics that I was part of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, those that, that was all certainly exciting and and, and important. Um, yeah, but but uh, you know, w- one could also get carried away, and just as all you know, you see some of the extravagances. Uh, today uh, in uh, the militancy with which uh, 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 certain types of politics, uh, uh, especially, say, anti-racist or uh, anti-patriarchal, anti-sexist politics are conducted, uh, anti-authoritarian politics are conducted, you know, you, you do see, you saw then as well a certain intolerance on the left uh, of anyone who wasn't ultra revolutionary. Uh, there were those tensions, uh, you know, those inevitable ultra tensions that arise at radicalizing moments.
0: Interesting. So a lot of parallels with with today. I've had some.
1: There are some uh, absolutely. You know, the yeah. kind of stuff that went on this week with her, uh, with, with uh, at, at Berkeley. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, where uh, God, I'm I'm slipping his name uh, Hardly shaken His class was invaded And he was accused of uh, You know, virtually being a fascist For having an in-class exam and, right, and, right. and, and you know, then his radical teachings and work on Latin America were challenged on the grounds that a white man shouldn't be te- teaching about the oppression of workers in Mexico. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. those type of extravagances, you know, were somewhat visible then as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one has to keep one's head? It drove some Marxist professors away from the left. I bet. Yeah. At that time. Uh, okay. Well,
0: you know, Adorno's uh, classroom yeah, was exactly, famously yeah. occupied in 1968. Yeah, exactly. uh, Jacques Lacan's classroom was occupied, yeah. and, and all of these people. Now, yeah. I mean, hell, who knows? Maybe there's there's some good reasons to to, to you know to criticize both of those people.
1: Yeah, I'm exactly, sure of it. I, mean, I think there was uh, <laughs> there was too great a counter reaction on the part of some people. Yeah, yeah, Adorno um, prime among them, of, of yes, course. And, and he was one Lacon of
0: them. Lacan was was certainly a snob, as as he, you know, <laughs> those 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 psychoanalysts out there can be. That's a that's a fun rib to my friends out there who I know are going to hate that line. But uh, <laughs> yeah, what did he say? Lacan looked at the looked at the woman who who mounted his desk and took her clothes off, and he looked at her very calmly, and he said, "You're looking for a master." You'll get one, meaning that this authoritarian tendencies wow. that they have is yeah. going to lead them right into the hands of, of a demigod type of figure who, you know, who, will right. then, who will then lead them astray. And yeah, uh, yeah. it seems to be the history of yeah. that ultra movement. Well,
1: and I have to say, I think Miliband kept his head over all this, and, and he was exemplary in that respect. He, he know, remained on the side of the students. He, was he, re, yeah, it, he, he remained on the side of the students, but, you know, without, uh, I, I think, also tailing them, mm-hmm. see, uh, you if you know what I mean, I see, uh, yes, you know, absolutely. and without refraining, at least uh, uh, in direct conversation from you know, from criticizing those aspects, but not being prepared to go public with an attack on them, nor did it shake his belief. Uh, in in the need for a revolutionary radicalization.
0: Right, so there we are. We're we're learning that there's there's a, you know t- trick number one to being a socialist intellectual. <laughs> we're, we're getting around to it here, bit by bit. Uh, incidentally, it's not, not not sort of dissolving into the rhetoric and into the 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 ethos of the of the, the spirit of the moment, remaining critical at a critical perspective. However, uh, always siding with. The impulses, because they're good ones, even if you know, the expression is uh, somewhat misguided sometimes, perhaps. All right. So, what? Let's 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 get into the figures that are there. The kind of figureheads who have who have long passed. Who you crossed paths with and marked your life in a, in a really serious way? We've already talked a little bit about Ralph Miliband, but that's, i mean, you and you and Ralph were very close up until his death in '94. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, What's—I mean, what was what was Ralph Miliband like? He's just kind of a mythical figure for millennials out there, you know, who who came of age long after he passed away. Uh, what was it like uh, growing up under his tutelage and then and then becoming a peer and working alongside him as as the co-editor of the Socialist Register?
1: You know, he, he he was a human being. Yeah, he's yeah. just a guy, right? He's yeah. just a, to I mean, you, to you. Yeah, and, and he would be he would be to any to anyone who, who was close yeah. to him. I, I don't think one should, in any sense, mythologize him. He himself uh, would refer to people like uh, Thompson or or Eric Hobbsbaum as the intellectual eagles, uh, and ah. someone like himself as, as uh, the, the people who who couldn't fly. Um, so, so you know, the, the, you know, when 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 should be careful of this, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I, you I'm know, sure. uh, we struck up a, a close friendship. Um, you know, for the kinds of reasons one normally does. I was already married, uh, uh, and his partner Marion and my wife Melanie got on very well. That's important. Yeah, yeah. The fact that Miliband, who was uh, the the son of Polish Jews. Mm-hmm who, uh, went to Belgium in the interwar period and then, uh, were escapees from Nazism. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, we, part of the bond that we had was that we liked certain Jewish foods together or, you know, could crack a Jewish joke. Uh, you know, those were, (laughs) those were elements in our relationship just
0: everyday um, stuff, then. Huh? Yeah, yeah. But surely, there
1: surely there was an intellectual bond no, there in terms of I working mean,
0: closely with someone. Yeah, no,
1: of course. I mean, uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think both being uh, and and of course me very much junior to him, both being involved in trying to think through this new Marxist theory of the state. Uh, you know, me uh, uh, taking up what had been his previous magnum opus. Uh, his book on parliamentary socialism mm-hmm. in the context of saying, you know, a an amendment of it, it, it looking at the conflict between uh, the unions and the militant workers in the unions and labor governments and. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, You know, the Labour Party had always been a party that proclaimed class harmony rather than class struggle. Their goal was to educate the ruling class to socialism, to bring the working class into a partnership with uh, the ruling class, etc. And and but nevertheless, it was always a class party. So insofar as there was class struggle, this meant that this party of class harmony, you know, always threw up class struggle inside of it. And, right, and right. my PhD thesis was a study of this class struggle inside the Labour Party between the unions and the Labour government's attempt to impose wage restraint uh, against these militant trade unions who were pushing up uh, prices and squeezing profits uh, mm-hmm. in the 1960s and 1970s. And uh, he put much more emphasis on the ideology of parliamentarism Mm-hmm. uh as determining what the labor party did and I rather put emphasis on the kind of parliamentarism that they did uh was determined by their ideology of class harmony. their their, their claim that they, that they represented the national interest better better than the conservatives because they represented all classes, not just the upper classes. Uh, you know, so, you know, there was a creative, I think, and he supported this work of mine a lot. And, and there was a creative interaction with w- between us as, uh, you know, I was investigating uh, the Labour Party in the late 60s and, and through the 1970s. And, you know, I'd learn from him. I'd come back from researching at a Labour Party conference and say, hey, I just heard this incredible radical speech by this guy, Neil Kinnock. He's you know, going he's to he's be the new socialist leader. And, <laughs> and he'd say, hang on a minute, Leo. I've seen guys <laughs> like him before. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, he isn't going to stay so radical very long. And, of course, he was right. Um, On the other hand, I would come back and say this would be a decade later. You know, I've I've struck up a close relationship with Tony Benn. And now now that he is clear he's not going to be leader of the party, having lost the deputy leadership, as he did very closely to that arch reactionary laborite, Dennis Healy. uh, He was then, Ben was then abandoned by a lot of the young Turks who had been around him who expecting expecting he would be leader of the party and prime minister and he was very much on his own intellectually and That's and right. you know I went to Miliband and and others that I knew in London and pointed this out and said this is ridiculous you guys should be in touch with him and out of that came although I went back to Canada I was teaching Canada by that point uh out of that came a kitchen cabinet which used to meet at Perry at at uh, At at Tony Benn's house with Miliband and Perry Anderson and Blackburn and and Jeremy Corbyn, um, Hillary Wainwright, etc. So, you know, there was a creative interaction, but it was it was political as much as intellectual always, because because the kind of research we did was research on the politics around us. You know, we weren't researching uh, uh, the structure of the brain. Uh, we were researching uh, party, party politics. Right. So let's, let's go back to that because you just railed that off, and
0: I'm, I, you, I'm floored by this. So Jeremy Corbyn, who's on the cusp of, of, of state power in, in the UK, uh, you know, Labor Party uh, here in the, the next election, he sat as a, as a young MP. He sat in uh, Ralph Miliband's kitchen, yeah. flanked by Tony Benn, Robin Blackburn, uh, Perry Anderson, founders of the new left regime. Yeah, not not, Hillary Ray- not, not,
1: not, 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 not nightly and only for a couple of years. Uh, it was sure. more often, sometimes in Miliband's kitchen, it was more often in, uh, Tony Ben's sitting room. Uh, but, but, uh, you have to remember that, uh, uh, in Ralph Miliband's kitchen, you would come across... Uh, and Ralph Miliband's sons came across uh, you know the, the most impressive array of Marxist uh, intellectuals and political actors uh, of the time very often he was you know an important center uh, of of uh, connecting people that way from his friendship with C. Wright Mills in the United States to his close relationship with Uh, the founders of Monthly Review, uh, especially Harry Magdoff, uh, to uh, uh, Ruth First uh, in in South Africa, uh, to uh, the people close to Il Manifesto, Rosanna Rosanda in Italy, and so on. Um, uh, So, uh, now, uh, Ralph's sons, Ralph and Marion's sons were nightly uh, part of those kinds of uh, uh discussions around the dinner table or the lunch table and and their their development uh, their articulateness their confidence politically has a great deal to do with this but they didn't end up uh in the labor party taking the kind of position uh although their positions were different uh that Jeremy Corbyn did so you know, you, you know you can't you you have to be careful in not putting too much emphasis just on you know, on those kinds of, of uh, soirees, if you like. I see, right, right. Just for listeners who who may be completely blind to UK
0: politics, that's Ed and uh, David Miliband. Ed was the leader of the party uh, for for several years, um, and uh, David was an MP himself and on the in the shadow cabinet or the cabinet. Yeah. The cabinet? Oh no, he, uh, he yes, uh, he was
1: he was uh, the the foreign secretary in in in, in uh, Blair and uh, and Brown's governments. Yeah. Uh, uh, so,
0: so th- these people grew up listening to these things. So you're right to say that you know ideology doesn't flow necessarily from the from the exposures uh, that. Yeah, you well, to some extent,
1: but yeah, time. I mean, you know, people take different positions coming out of this. Yeah, yeah. So, so one
0: figure I want to pick your brain about before we part ways here, Tony Benn. You mentioned this. This guy is a lightning rod on, on sort of left social democratic uh, wing of the Labour Party. Although he was marginal marginalized in the later years, uh, he, he nonetheless kind of. Uh, Held down the fort, so to speak, uh, so that somebody like a Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell could rise yeah. uh, in, in this particular fortuitous moment. What was your relationship like with Tony, Ben? How well, did you strike I, that off?
1: I, I want to qualify your hell down the fort. Uh, okay. What was so important and exciting about uh, the Benite moment in the Labor Party in the 70s, and this uh, was taking place in other social democratic parties, and to some extent also in the American Democratic Party between sixty-eight and seventy-two, mm-hmm. was the emergence of a attempt to democratize and radicalize social democracy beyond what it had been in the twentieth century. An mm-hmm. attempt to go beyond the reforms. Uh, the bureaucratic but necessary welfare reforms, redistributive reforms that had been introduced uh, uh, by social democratic governments. An attempt Mm -hmm. to capture, to learn from the rhetoric and the practices even of uh, the new social movements and their orientation to a more participatory uh, democracy, if you like. And and what Ben uh, uh, did, and you know, he had begun as, as uh, you know a, a radical guy in one sense, who saw his main task, even when he you know was first asked when he, before he was nominated as an MP in 1951, what you know what would you want to do, and, and he said, I mainly would want to educate socialists. I'd want to make socialists. Nevertheless, he was you know he was a media oriented techie you know, new technology kind of politician through the 50s, you know, Mm -hmm. close to the uh, liberation movements in Africa and so on, but, you know, hardly seen as on the most radical wing of the party. But he learned from what we were talking about in the late 60s, from this explosion of, of radicalism in the late 60s, both young worker radicalism and young student radicalism. Um, and the anti-authoritarianism of it, uh, that he he tried to channel that into the Labour Party. Um, and I think it was that that captured a young person like Corbyn. Were he merely trying to hold the fort of the old Labour left, that never would have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this was very important. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, I... I Uh, You know, I'm not sure I appreciated this fully uh, at the time. It it was only perhaps, uh, you know, into the mid-1970s, even when I came back to Canada, that I could fully see the radicalism of this attempt to change the Labour Party. But I took the view that, uh, I think we discussed this last time, that it wouldn't succeed because it would inevitably split the party and he'd be blamed uh, for taking it to the point of splitting the party. And this is exactly what happened. And, you know, a split party can't win elections. And in the face of Thatcher, not winning elections means you carry the burden of letting Thatcher in. Just as if Sanders had won the nomination and had lost to Trump, the people supporting Sanders and Sanders himself would have carried the burden of letting Trump in. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, which would in itself have been ludicrous, but that's what the Clintonites would have been able to hammer them with, and they would have hammered them with it. You can be sure. Uh, right, right, so, uh, and that was why Ben got marginalized, and why Corbyn got marginalized. And I was going to say the very same thing could have happened
0: to Corbyn had there not been this groundswell. Yes, it did, to say Cor- say it did happen. It did happen
1: to Corbyn. You know, most the- of the Benite supporters. <clears throat> Tony Blair was one of them. <clears throat> you know when they saw the writing on the wall, and this is what happened to Kinnock. First of all, uh, well, Hillary Ben, for God's sake, yes, they moved. <laughs> uh, you know, they moved with uh, uh, the tide. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't fight him, join him. Above all, if you can't find f- f- fight Rupert, Mur- Rupert Murdoch and his control of the British media. Now his control of the British, uh, the American media, Fox News, etc. Then you join them. You know, you you kiss their part in the expression, they kiss their ass. Um, You bend the knee. uh, (laughs) So, you know, Corbyn did not not do this. uh, But as a result, he and others in the campaign group, as it was called, of MPs around Ben, uh, yes, we're very marginalized in the parliamentary Labour Party. They remained the link to whatever campaigns were going on in Britain. You know, Corbyn uh, is a campaigner and he would be linked to whatever campaigns were going on uh, in Britain, whether it was the miners strike or whether it was the struggles against uh, Thatcher's attempt to impose a poll tax on working people in terms of their right to vote, uh, or whether it was the militarization, uh, uh, you know, or or, uh, of the first Gulf War, uh, let alone the second one, uh, you know, uh, they were, those MPs were the link. Uh, but they were marginal very marginal until Corbin was out of the blue uh totally out of the blue elected leader of the labor party uh uh in in a few years ago right so uh that relationship sort of uh
0: matured throughout the years uh what was tony ben uh, passed away in uh two thousand no no no. no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait after that. I'm, I'm completely.
1: When did he pass oh, away? Ju- just uh, it must have just been three, four years yeah, ago. 2014. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah. I don't know why. He he months. said to me, um, we were walking in a park in London uh, during the days of the Blair government. During you know seeing how appallingly realist, without any imagination, uh, the the Blairite government was. He said, uh, how long do you think this long night of the left is going to last, Leo? And <laughs> I said, I thought it could last as long as the period between uh, the chartists in Britain and the 1848 revolutions uh, and the uh, great strikes, the mass, say, dock strike uh, or, or uh, the match girl strikes of the late 1880s, early 1990s. And that meant a period of some 40, 50 years. And he turned to me and smiled and said, well, in that case, I'm going to have to live until 2030. (laughs) Um, And he was no young chicken by that point. Uh, And, uh, you know, that was a wonderful comment. And uh, I very much wish he had lived, you know, when Corbyn uh, uh, was elected leader, And then when he did so well in in uh, this last election, I very much and many others who were friends of Tony's wish he had lived to see this.
0: It certainly would have been a triumph. What was your relationship, if any, with uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and and what do you make of that? No,
1: it was entirely it was entirely marginal. We met once Mm -hmm. or twice. Uh, uh, You know, sometimes I'd go into uh, Tony's house when I'd visit London, and Jeremy would be coming out. Uh, so we knew each other, but, you know, just to look at really, I mean, and now we knew each other enough that when he was elected leader, Hillary Wainwright and I uh, were the first intellectuals to score an interview with him, uh, which was published in Red Pepper. And I, and I think even perhaps on Jacobin, in Jacobin. Uh, yeah, I think Jacobin did uh, republish yeah, that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, but that also had to do with knowing, uh, you know, people who he brought in around him, like Seamus Milne, uh, the radical Guardian journalist, uh, who hmm. you know went into his office and has become uh, his main speechwriter and and advisor and and organizer.
0: So let's take the last, you know, four or five minutes here and uh, let's talk a little bit about the Socialist Register. You have been the editor for over 35 years now. Uh, It's now you and uh, Greg Albo, a colleague of yours at uh, York University. Uh, What's the kind of trajectory that you've sort of mapped out for that for that publication in terms of trying to frame the project of the contemporary left and moving forward?
1: Well, that, you know, my becoming a co-editor of it uh, was very much uh, a matter of my uh, close relationship with with Miliband. Um, Mm -hmm. And and, uh, he turned to me and asked another former student of his, George Ross, who taught at uh, Brandeis. Uh, whether we would uh, join h- him as co-editor, this was in uh, 1983. John Saville, by that point, while he kept his name on the masthead, would provide advice but was doing very little editing. Um, and uh, Ross decided not to. Uh, uh, and and I uh, was incredibly moved. Not and, and and couldn't imagine anything more exciting, you know. Because the Register, as as Ralph used to say, uh, was uh, hard to read, hard to write for, uh, but really, really worth it. Uh, you know, one felt it was of a quality, of a sobriety, uh, of a non flightiness, of a. A tendency not to take up intellectual fashions uh, but of a tendency to try to develop uh, the best conceptualizations in the socialist tradition possible uh, through a survey of what was going on in the real world uh, year to year Uh, to be asked to be involved in that and I already had published two articles and two essays in it uh, was very exciting Uh, and I jumped at it and Uh, It became an entirely new apprenticeship, uh, as Ralph and I, from 1985 on. There were a couple of other co-editors very briefly, uh, but it was Ralph and I who did the work. Not least because Ralph was by that point spending half a year in North America, uh, Mm. teaching uh, first at uh, Brandeis, then uh, here at York University, uh, then at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York. Um, But, you know, we would be spending time together, but also just doing this, of course, through the mail. There wasn't the Internet then. Um, Right. right. Much more challenging, I would bet. And I learned from him, uh, uh, you know, how how hard work, but how gratifying work being uh, an editor is. I had some experience of that through editing. My first book on Canada, the Canadian State, Political Economy, and Political Power, back in the nineteen late nineteen seventies, and in my role in in founding and being one of the editors of Studies in Political Economy, but uh, but doing it in the Register with the quality of people we were able to attract uh, in every volume uh, was very hard work, but incredibly gratifying. I remember there I was with. Uh, 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 scissors and tape cutting to pieces a essay by Ernest Mandel for the 1987 volume and moving chunks of the text around something that I've (laughs) become very good at as an editor as anybody who's been subject to my editorship will tell you Um, uh, and and, you know imagine uh, you know me uh, uh, at that point uh, uh, doing that. So, yes, it created a sense of confidence, a sense of purpose. And and uh, I do think, I'm very proud of this, that the register uh, has remained, uh, you know, one of uh, maybe the, this sounds immodest, uh, uh, publication in the English-speaking world, uh, which uh, perhaps most sustains uh, the uh, intellectual quality uh, of, you know, what emerged in the 1960s, uh, the purpose and the intellectual quality and commitment uh, of, of uh, uh, what emerged in the 1960s that didn't succumb to either the fashionability of postmodernism or poststructuralism, or what we called in the 1990 volume, the retreat of the intellectuals mm-hmm. um, in, in the face of that, in the face mm-hmm. of the political reaction, of course, of, of uh, the 1980s and 1990s and since. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 it has been wonderful. And, you know, it, it's a fantastic thing to be uh, responsible for something, which I, as I am now with Greg Elbo. Um, You know, where you can invite almost anyone, and most of our essays are commissioned, of course, uh, you know, invite almost anyone around the world uh, to contribute to the Socialist Register, and almost, uh, you know, you almost never get a no. Uh, If you do, it's because, you know, someone is ill or or sometimes overcommitted, but, you know, that's really uh, a remarkable thing. You know, and and as George Ross said, and I think it was one of the reasons he decided not to do this, because he was part of an intellectual circle in Boston, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. He said, look, if you want to be read in Alexandria, Egypt, published in the Socialist Register, if you want to be read in Cambridge, Massachusetts, don't. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, And, and, uh, you know, that's something to be proud of, I think. Although I'd be happy to be read more around Harvard. Uh, but that's not the point. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that, that I admire and respect and probably everybody else who, who is an admirer of the register at this point is, is that, uh, you all uh, have a way of consolidating uh, the sort of current going on in the broad left, but without tailing the fads uh, that, that sort of circulate You know the, the, the people on the left Are sort of jumping From, from thing to thing yeah. From movement to movement yeah. You sort of you, 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 You're aloof from that Without being disconnected From it Yeah there's right? a t- And I think
1: that's really Yeah there's an unfortunate yeah, yeah. tendency Maybe a natural one uh, You know uh, When we're uh, uh, In the doldrums uh, When we're not feeling And heaven knows The, the left is politically weak In most places Uh, You know, to look to uh, uh, every new breakthrough, whether intellectual or uh, geographic, uh, with starry eyes. Uh, And there's a tendency to do what uh, uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb did, the Fabians who were by no means, you know, radical Marxists. Um, who were one of the founders of Lenin School of economics? They went to the Soviet Union in 1935, and came back uh, and said, "We've seen the future, and it works." You know, this was at the very yeah. moment of the show trials, um, and and uh, there was a tend- there is a tendency on the left uh, to see the Portuguese Revolution of 1974, and to come back and say, "It's happening." Uh, Or to see Central America in the early 80s uh, and not look at what was going on there that would lead to its defeat. Uh, Or to get very excited about uh, 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 what was taking place in Chiapas in 1994 uh, and not investigate, you know, what would lead it to run into deep contradictions. Uh, uh, Or to go to the world social forums in Porto Alegre, Brazil. Uh, and and not interrogate the weaknesses of the Workers' Party, uh, the marginalization of the popular assemblies. Um, and, and that happened again, of course, with Venezuela. Uh, it yes. happened with Syriza. And then what happens in that context if you do that is that it, rather than asking the hard questions about what's not working, So that you can take that back home and say, look, we need to figure out in light of what's not working there, what to do here in such a way that it might work here. Uh, You know, you then get disillusioned when things don't turn out as they should. And we talked about this briefly last time. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, people who I think soberly looked at what was going on in Greece saw the limitations before they were elected both the constraints they were under, but also their internal limitations. So when they ran up against what they ran up against and weren't able to transcend it, you know, one didn't turn on them and say, oh, you've let us down. Oh, you're traitors. Oh, you betrayed us. You know, one has a sense of the incredibly difficult thing that we're all engaged in. And we want to learn from their limitations, their mistakes, you know, even when they're at their high point. Uh, in order to come back and say, you know and both and both alert people to you know they're not about to create utopia over there, uh, but also learn from their limitations and mistakes and And the register, I think Miliband always had that. I have to give him perhaps most credit for that orientation and and I think that also was very much implanted in the register and has has continued through you know, it's over four decades of publication.
0: Well, that's an excellent overview of, of, you know, the last, you know, 40 some odd years of the socialist left coming from through Ralph Miliband, uh, to yourself, Tony Ben, we've mentioned a lot of really key luminaries. I, I totally understand that, you know, that they're just humans and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't deify these folks. We should see them as driven by Far the same, from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The same uh, <laughs> impulses as everybody else. But I guess, uh, you know, there are worse things that could happen to somebody than deification. I suppose after we pass oh, away. I'm not right?
1: sure. I suppose uh, Deifi-
0: vilification. Uh,
1: <laughs> I, I I don't think deification is what we want. <laughs>
0: it's not. Like I said, you know, tri- I say, remember me as the coward that I was, not as some kind of saint. Yeah, that's right. right. I think, exactly. You know, that's, uh, Well, Leo, thank you so much for for chatting about this. Uh, I could really pick your brain for hours, but uh, i got to let you go, and I know my guests are really going to enjoy this, so thanks again.
1: Great to talk to you, Adam. Keep up the good work again, as I said before.